as they head down the stairs for their Bible story and lesson and time together. Um, Those who are upstairs or online, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth is where we've been for the last few weeks, but if you're joining us fresh today, you can find Ruth in the early part of the Old Testament, the beginning part of the Bible. You'll find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And as we go to Ruth, we'll be reading all of Ruth chapter 3 today, because it's kind of hard to divide up the story any other way. This is just a chapter that goes together. So it's a little bit of a longer chapter, but not too long, because the narrative will keep right on a going. And just remember that this book has a lot to teach us about how we might relate to God, and also at the level of the characters interacting with one another, This is a love story between Ruth and Boaz as well. And today in Ruth 3, well, the plot continues and the plot thickens in this love story. But before we pray, before before we read God's word together, we pray for God's blessing upon the word, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, to receive whatever it is that God so chooses to speak into our lives today. So with that in mind, let's pray. God, we come to you. We come to you knowing that your word has the ability to speak truth into our lives. We come knowing that your word, your word can teach us how to connect with you, how to pray to you. Your word can strengthen our faith. And bring us into right relationship and full communion with you. So Lord, we pray this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit's power and presence, open your word to us. That we may receive not the words of the preacher, but that we may hear your Holy Spirit's movement in our hearts and lives. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. 
The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The conversation is the relationship. I'll say that again and explain a little bit of what I think it means. The conversation is the relationship. Meaning you can describe your relationships with other people however you want to, but the truest notion of how your relationship is comes down to the conversations that you have with someone. If there's a relationship where you have a friendly, casual, but kind of keep it at the surface level, we can talk about some easy things. We're polite, but we don't know each other well. The conversations that you have will tell you this is a casual, friendly relationship. If there is someone in your life that you have deep, meaningful conversations with that are authentic to you, where there are no secrets, where, where all of the bearings of your soul are offered with authenticity, you can say that is a deep relationship because the conversations are deep. And if there's someone that every conversation you have with them just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, every time you talk, you see that person and you're almost annoyed before you're even talking to them. And the conversations are maybe a little passive aggressive, maybe a little back and forth. You know that there's not honesty as much as just, we just have to get through this conversation there's probably a strained relationship there. The conversation is the relationship. You can't say that you have a great relationship with someone if your conversations are, well, horrible or always stressful or frustrating. Those are not the people that you would say, oh yeah, we're really close. We just don't really like each other. Sometimes in the holidays, we might get our anxiety going, just thinking about family members that maybe we just don't want to talk to. Because the conversation is the relationship. The relationship's quality will be shown 
in the conversations that are had or not had. What then is the right posture for our conversations with God? Consider this. We are people who believe that that we are called to be in right relationship with God, that we are called to follow Jesus as his disciples. So what is the right posture for the relationship? Because whether it's always true or not, what we know is right is to be always pursuing a close relationship with God. But you would not say that you are really close with someone that you never talk to or that you never talk about anything real with. That would not be true. It's not equivalent. How then do we talk to God? Do our conversations with God match up with the type of relationship that we want to have with God? Do we want to be close to God, but don't really talk to God very much? Consider different ways that we can approach God, because it is in prayer that we do the talking, and we believe it is both mysterious ways of the Holy Spirit and through God's word that God does the talking to us. But what's the posture of the conversations that we offer to God? Do we view God sometimes as a cosmic vending machine? I need it, I think God has it, or I want it and don't have it, so I'll ask God for it. And I say that, we would of course say, no, 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 God is not a mechanical vending machine. And yet, there is a strong undercurrent in our world, plenty of, I would say, health and wealth, the prosperity gospel teaching, that kind of do turn God into a vending machine. The phrase, name it and claim it comes to mind of, I want it, God can give it to me, therefore, God, give me what I want. It can be a very cavalier posture to take with God. We want, God's the provider, so if we name God as the provider, then God has to provide. Hmm, don't know if that one captures the type of relationship that we want to have with God. There's also another extreme, which probably we're more guilty of um, in Reformed circles, um, which is what I would call the Stoic acceptance. Maybe this won't ring true for you, but I have a sneaking suspicion for some of us we might relate. God already knows all things. Therefore, we almost don't think that we need to pray because we're only naming to God the obvious that God already knows. So we almost have this stoic resignation, this acceptance that, "Mm, yep, I'll just keep walking through life. God will do what God will do. That's not the type of parent-child relationship that any of us would want or yearn for. To know that someone's out there, but you're never really going to talk or hear from them. I'm sure since, I mean, now you all know that it's my birthday. Thanks a lot. I mean, I'm sure I'll hear some from, some from, hear from some family, hear from some family members today. But hopefully it's not just a birthday greeting that that's the only time we talk. That wouldn't be a very deep relationship. We want to talk even about things that people already know. If you're a little bit older and you get together with old friends that you haven't seen, some of the first things you do, you'll catch up about what's going, but you'll also retell the stories of your past. Families will do this in gatherings where we tell the same stories over and again, even though we already know them. 
God already knows. But God also delights in our approach, in our conversations where we come to God with, yes, things that God already knows. But we don't come just with our asks. We come with our requests, yes, but we also come with our joys, with our gratitudes, with the simple observation that if life is good, we say, God, you have blessed me and I give you thanks for that. Not because you're the cosmic vending machine for all good things, but because you are the source of all life. And I give you thanks for those things which enrich my life. How do we rightly approach the Lord our God, King of the universe, who also humbled himself, dwelt among us, and called us friends? There is a juxtaposition here of Well, a paradox, really, of the king of the universe and a baby born in a manger. Where's the relationship between being rightly reverent of God and all that God is, along with not being too far away, but also not becoming too casual, that that we think we're talking to God like we would talk to anyone else because God is God. How do we live in a way that reflects Not just the promise of salvation, but also the connection to the Savior. Not just, okay, salvation, I've got it, we're good to go. But the relationship with the Savior. How do we show that we are sons and daughters of the King, making us quite literally princes and princesses, and also servants, slaves? Both of those are at work throughout Scripture, and in our lives. And that's where I think Ruth chapter 3 works as a profound guide for how we navigate these two different sides of relating to God. And we do so by paying attention to how Ruth relates to Boaz. Now, we're not saying in any way that, that Boaz is God, but Boaz serves as a prime example of so many good things. God is love. Boaz shows himself to be very loving. Boaz is very powerful, very wealthy. He can give much to Ruth. Boaz is also a guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer, which is from the book of Leviticus explaining that that if you were a person of means, it was your responsibility by law to take care of those who were down and out, those who were at a loss. It was your responsibility by God's law. God can be understood through God's law, but appreciated through wisdom. Similarly, Ruth has come to a greater understanding of Boaz through knowing that throughout all of Ruth, he is following the law. But she appreciates him more and more through seeing the wisdom that he lives with. Ruth's approach to Boaz can teach us a lot about our posture of coming before God as someone who is powerful and who provides and also who is kind and loving and wants to be in relationship with us. Ruth navigates that much as we will in our walk with the Lord to try to understand God through his word, through the law, to appreciate God's wisdom, and to know God's redemption, to know that God is love. So if the conversation is the relationship, how does Ruth talk to Boaz? so that we can understand how we might learn from her how to talk to God. There's two words that seem like opposites once again. 
Ruth is submissive. And Ruth is bold. Now, we've made submissive a bad word in all kinds of ways. But, but hold on to this for a minute, that, that Ruth shows a type of submission that does not make her any less bold. She tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, I will do whatever you say. You tell me to go to Boaz. You tell me to, to wash myself, to put on perfume, to put on my nice clothes, to go to Boaz and let him tell me what to do next. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth says. And she goes. But Ruth is also bold. She is not afraid. And she makes some of her own bold moves in the situation. Now, harvest time is a great feasting time in the Old Testament. And as you might have picked up from Ruth chapter 3, the description of what's happening, that, that there's merrymaking and there is eating and drinking because it was a time to celebrate that the earth has provided its bounty again. And sometimes celebrations get a little bit carried away. Sometimes people don't make the best choices when they're in a really good mood and perhaps have been eating and drinking a little bit too much. I'm not um, saying that this is an isolated incident, but rather if you look to Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, Hosea the prophet describes this in, in chastising Israel. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. You get the picture that sometimes at the threshing floor, there were some other celebrations that weren't so good happening there. The wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Ruth goes to the threshing floor at night, well-dressed, smelling good, and is told to lay down at Boaz's feet. Naomi told her to, and Ruth goes. She goes submitting to the command of her mother-in-law, but let's hold on to the fact that she also goes boldly, seemingly unafraid. And I think by this point in the book, we can understand that Ruth knows who she is. She knows what she's after, and she knows what she's all about. Ruth had the courage to leave her homeland behind to go with Naomi. So give Ruth credit for her boldness and for her courage. She is also smart enough and has experienced Boaz enough to know what he's all about and what he's like. And so she goes, and she curls up at Boaz's feet. And what happens then? Well, what would happen to you if you thought you were alone in bed and all of a sudden there was someone else there? Boaz is startled, for all of a sudden there's this person there. One thing that we can know from Boaz's character with his devotion to following the law, is that he wishes to do nothing wrong. And so he asks, who are you to Ruth? And she answers once again with some submission, I am your servant, Ruth. But then she says the bold words in verse 9. I, I wish that they were bolded in our Bibles just to know how bold they are. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Spread the corner of your garment over me. She takes charge. 
in a key moment, Naomi told her to let Boaz tell Ruth what to do. But this is the one time where Ruth, in all of her boldness, goes a little bit beyond what Naomi said. Ruth told, Naomi told Ruth to do whatever Boaz said. Let Boaz take the lead. He's in charge. But she takes charge in a key moment here and makes one significant and symbolic request to spread your cloak over me, to redeem me as one of your own. Now, it was Boaz who told Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12, that the wings of the Almighty have covered her. The shadow of, of God's wings may be over Ruth, as if Ruth is one of God's own. And now she asks Boaz to cover her with his cloak. This is the same as asking for a marriage proposal. Ruth is bold. This is Bible times. We'd expect Boaz to be making the first move, but Ruth has essentially proposed to Boaz. Take me into your home. Cover me under the shadow of your wings. Make me one of your own. She goes with humility. She goes with some amount of being submissive. But she is also bold. Because being submissive in this case does not mean that she has lost her sense of agency to make decisions for herself. And she also doesn't lose her humility. The way Ruth approaches, approaches Boaz could be said in this way. If she was only submissive to Boaz, she would say, I'm yours. Do what you will. But because she is also bold and she knows the character of Boaz, she also is simultaneously saying, I'm yours. Do what is right. Ruth has made herself very available to Boaz in a private, intimate setting. I'm yours. Do what you will. But she also knows the law and that Boaz seeks to follow the law. And that he has a responsibility to take care of her and Naomi in ways that they did not have the legal ability to take care of themselves. And so she says to him in the same way, I'm yours, do what is right. And then what does Boaz do? He assures her that he will do what is right. And that there's actually someone in front of the line of him that would be a guardian redeemer that could take on the property of Elimelech and essentially buy it from Naomi so that she would be secure. Boaz says, though, there is one other in front of me, but if that other will not be your guardian redeemer, your kinsman redeemer, then surely as the Lord lives, I will do it because Boaz will do what is right. And as a promise, and as a sign of good faith and generosity, Boaz measures six scoops of barley into Ruth's shawl so that she can carry it back. Now, we read words, uh, th that seems like kind of an obvious statement. We read, we read words, that's what words are for. But sometimes we fail to make the picture in our heads of what those words mean. If we think about how it's acted out, Actually, I know RCYF tonight is acting out some scripture passages because it makes you pay attention. If you had six measures of barley in a shawl that Ruth is wearing, how is she going to carry it? I should have brought a towel and a beach ball with. She'd carry it like this. All of a sudden, 
Ruth, leaving before anyone knows, because Boaz says, no one can know a woman was at the threshing floor because there is a bad reputation about what might happen there, and we need to kind of keep things clean and good here. But now Ruth is leaving the threshing floor looking like a pregnant woman carrying the barley, carrying it in her shawl. It is not an accident in the way the story of Ruth is written that Ruth leaves the threshing floor carrying Boaz's seed. It is an intentional double entendre because if you go back to the beginning, when Elimelech and Malin and Kilion died, when there was no heir, when there was no hope or future for Naomi's family, when everything seemed like it was lost, that the family line would not continue, that there was no continuation Everything was barren and desolate, and Naomi said, Call me Mara, for my life has been made bitter by the Almighty. And if we were watching the book of Ruth as a play, we would see her carrying the barley, carrying the seed of Boaz away from the threshing floor. And we would all of a sudden be given a glimpse of hope that there is going to be new life that the harvest is plentiful and that Ruth's line will continue on. Now, he only gives her six measures of barley. And once again, if we pay attention to how numbers are used in the Old Testament, we understand that six measures is good, but it's not perfect. It's not complete. It is not fulfillment because seven measures, seven measures would be completion. Seven measures would be perfection. Seven measures would be full redemption. And Boaz gives Ruth the promise with six measures of barley that she leaves looking as someone who is carrying something other than barley. That if this other kinsman redeemer will not do his duty, then Boaz will redeem her and take Ruth as his wife. Because Ruth went to the threshing floor submissive to what Naomi said and ready to be Boaz's servant. But Ruth also went with boldness And said, Boaz, do what is right for me. Take care of me as one of your own. And this is relying on God's character as one who does not let it end with the end of life, but seeks hope and a future for God's people. This is the promise that Naomi was hoping for and that Ruth leaves the threshing floor with. Because Ruth is bold. So if the conversation is the relationship... Do you relate to God the way Ruth relates to Boaz and Naomi? Submissive and bold, full of humility and also full of hope. I think maybe what holds us back from praying to God, from being more like Ruth, can be our fear that we don't know what will happen to us if we make ourselves fully available to God. And that, I mean, we're people of the United States. We believe in individual liberty and autonomy. To submit to someone else is not how we have been culturally wired. And we can lose the reminder in that, that we are to submit to God. But we're not used to doing that. We're not used to following authority of others. We might fear that if we make ourselves too available to God... We might be pushed down a road that we don't maybe want to go down for our own comfort, for our own fears, for our own preferences of how life could be. 
that might keep us from submitting is actually a lack of courage. We also might not know how to ask boldly. We don't know what to ask for or how to ask it. And a lack of wisdom will prevent us from being bold. Some people are bold in foolish ways. As maybe some of you are told as your kids, when you were a kid, there's a fine line between courage and stupidity. That line is wisdom. If we are to approach God and know that the conversation is the relationship, then we have to have enough courage to be ready to submit to God's leading and guiding. And we also have to have enough wisdom to make us bold in knowing what to ask for, in knowing God's character well enough that God is not the cosmic vending machine of our preferences, but rather that God is the one who will bless us according to God's purposes. It takes wisdom to be bold. Otherwise, well, then it's that other version of foolishness. The conversation is the relationship. And it will take courage in our prayers to say to God, thy will be done, not just with a stoicism, but with trust and hope. And it takes wisdom and faith to ask God to do something big. We hold these two together when we pray for healing, and we also say, but thy will be done. When we pray for restoration, as we did for Bob Kuhn a few weeks ago, And also we hold, your will be done, O Lord. The conversation will be the relationship. And I wonder if in our prayers, if we can approach God in this way, where we say to God, Lord, I am yours. Do what you will. My life is yours. Do what you will. My wealth, my property, my mind, my heart are yours. Do what you will. And also we say to God, as sons and daughters, I am yours, do what is right. I am yours, do what is right, keep your promises, show me your goodness, show me your steadfast loving kindness, show me that when I repent that you will bring about good fruit, show me that death and misery are not the end for me any more than they were the end for Ruth and Naomi, show me hope. When I come to you, O God, I'm yours. Do what you will. I'm yours. Do what is right. For God delights in using us for God's purposes, and God also delights in doing right by us, in celebrating the promises that are given to those who rest in the shadow of his wings. As it was said of Naomi in chapter two, of Ruth in chapter two, and as it was pronounced in a proposal in Ruth chapter 3, that we can be so close to God that God could cover us in his cloak in the way that Ruth was covered in the cloak of Boaz on the threshing floor. God delights in this. And so we do well as a people in prayer to say, God, I'm yours. Do what you will. God, I'm yours. Do what is right. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.